Welcome to Pound the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo. I'm sitting here on this opening week of the NBA season in the Score Studios with co-host Joe Wolfon. What up? Wow, I wonder if you just blew the eardrums off our listeners, because uh, according to the audio levels in front of me, that peaked like a mofo when you said what up. So yeah, apologies I mean, to our listeners. You, um, can, uh, you can scale down my mic a bit if need be, but I am obviously pretty hyped up. NBA season starting tomorrow night. It's It's been a long offseason, so I feel like we have just talked for so long about these teams and our projections and what we think is going to happen and we think might happen. And we're finally going to get to actually watch some meaningful NBA games tomorrow night, which is pretty crazy to think. Yeah, we're going to get into our predictions for the season in the second half or final two-thirds of our show, I guess. We're also going to do a uh, small giveaway at some point in the show. But let's start with the actual news that's out there. We'll kind of blow through this and then get to the predictions. So mentioned opening night, Tuesday night, the defending champion Toronto Raptors will open the season raising their banner. And a big part of that championship run last year was one Pascal Siakam, who over the weekend agreed to a four-year extension worth approximately $130 million with the Raptors that if he uh, earns an all-NBA first or second team nod this season or in the unlikely event that he wins MVP, would actually make about $156 million over those four years. So let's jump right into it. Win-win for both parties here or did you take exception to anything with this extension? Anything surprise you? No, um, I guess you could say it surprised me that it was only four years, and I'm not sure if there was reporting about this, but my guess would be that it was Siakam's camp that pushed for four years rather than the Raptors. I don't see why, from the Raptors' side, they would want to stop at four rather than going to the full five-year si- max. Siakam's camp reportedly also pushed for a player option in right, the year that was four. Michael Grange, I think, reported that yes. in his story for Sportsnet, which... I mean, I think that makes sense from Siakam's side and obviously makes sense from the Raptors' side to push just to have that fourth year fully locked in. I think from from Siakam's perspective, uh, I guess just being able to re-enter the market a year earlier. And I mean, it's possible that, that Siakam's camp would have pushed for a player option for a fifth year and that the Raptors turned that down as well. And, and if the fifth year was contingent on it being a player option for Siakam, then it makes perfect sense that the Raptors would hold the line and and not want to give that to them because definitionally a player option benefits the player and there's no real benefit to the team because uh, the player is only going to opt into that if it's beneficial to them. So I think, you know, my my stance has always kind of been if you're going to max the player out anyway, like why not just wait? But I think there are certain situations and uh, this to me is one of them where you're really just delaying the inevitable. And if you have a chance to sow some goodwill and show that you're committed to a player uh, and give them that sort of security, that is going to help foster a strong relationship between player and team, then why not just do it? Because realistically, even if Siakam doesn't take another leap this season, if he's the exact same player he was last year, if he gets to free agency next summer, I mean, I know there's only like four teams now that have max cap space or project to, one of those teams was going to throw a max offer sheet at him, and the Raptors were going to match. So I don't really see a huge downside to doing it now. Yeah, agreed. And, you know, if you want to talk about the Raptors' slim hopes of repeating or at least contending this season, then we can talk about 
you know, what Pascal Siakam maybe needs to do to improve and actually become a, a bona fide number one option. But that's a different conversation. If we're just talking about whether this guy's worth the value, the on-court value of a maximum contract, he's already worth it. Like you mentioned, he doesn't even have to get better. He can just be what he was last year. Basically, 17 points, 7 rebounds, 3 assists on like 55, 37, 79 shooting while being an all-defensive team candidate on the other end. That's a max guy. You know, and by the way, did that on a title-winning team. So, yeah, you know, I guess there could be like minor squabbles about the timing and everything. But I think in just in terms of the value, the Raptors retained a max level 25-year-old. And that 25-year-old earns max money eight years after he started playing basketball. Win-win. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he just his skill set is so valuable. I think in today's NBA, right? Like the ability to guard basically every position, uh, his ability to be both a finisher and a creator, his ability to run the break, as much as you know the the kind of offensive creation and his lack of ability, or at least as demonstrated so far, to shoot off of the dribble uh, and shoot threes above the break. Like he does basically every other thing extremely well, and I think. For a team that is hoping to be competitive, you know, well into the future, to have a player like that who has been on just this incredible upward trajectory ever since he started playing basketball eight years ago, <laughs> it makes perfect sense for you to want to hold on to him for as long as possible. So um, I think this was a good piece of business for both sides and one that felt inevitable, I think, um, whether it was this season or in the offseason. An extension that did not feel inevitable, Bradley Beal. Two years, about $72 million extension that... A uh, one plus one. Right. That takes him through the 2022-23 season, but that 2022-23 season is a player option at about $37 million. I was surprised uh, that this got done. I just figured Beal was either going to take the, I think, max extension that was on the table or whatever it was, or whatever extension was on the table. It was, yeah, three years, 111. So I, it was really just one extra year. Right. I figured he was either going to take that or not take it, and a trade would eventually happen. I didn't kind of see this middle ground happening. I don't think it takes him off the table for a trade. Well, it does this season. It does this season, yeah. But, you know, I don't think it necessarily means he's going to play there the, the life of this contract. But the fact that he's now not trade eligible this season, it did surprise me. And, and I don't know, I guess... What are your thoughts on it? I'll give my thoughts after I hear yours. I mean, this happened like pretty shortly after we dropped that episode yeah. last week where I was arguing for the Nuggets putting Jamal Murray on the table yeah. in order to get him. He has been the subject of all of our trade speculation more or less this offseason, right? I mean, we've talked about Chris Paul a bit and we've maybe talked about Kyle Lowry a bit, but for the most part... When we speculate about what this season might look like, there's always that caveat of, well, this might be a team that could cobble together a trade package for Bradley Beal. We, we, we've talked about that with the Nuggets. We've talked about that with the Pelicans. We've talked about it with the Celtics. Like, There's all these teams where it seemed like they might have the goods to get this done. And I mean, I guess we'll, we'll have to wait and see just sort of how bunched up the teams are at the top and what the margins are separating those contenders. But I don't know how many other pieces are going to become available this season that are really going to have the swing potential that Bradley Beal presented. So I think his no longer being on the trade market really does impact how this season is going to play out. And from his perspective, like I get it. I mean, he locks in just an extra bit of financial security, gives himself the opportunity to re-enter the market after 10 years when he can sign a, you know, basically a supermax 35% of the cap uh, with massive escalators that could you know if he makes an all nba team between now and then 
could push him up over like $250 million. And I, I understand it from that perspective. It's just a bit of a bummer, I think, for us as like NBA fans because for a 26-year-old all-star to be wasting away in a hopeless situation like that, I just don't think it improves the viewing experience, the NBA product. Like I would prefer to see a player like that in a competitive situation. I would prefer to have had him in play as a trade option that might be able to tilt the balance this season. It's not as interesting with him staying in Washington, but, but I get it from his perspective, not just because of the financial implications, like I just mentioned, but because like they had this new front office that has made a commitment to him and also told him that they're going to empower him, right? Like this was a big thing that, you know, Tommy Shepard had said when he took over, which was that their priority was locking up Beal and that they were going to give him some say in personnel decisions moving forward. And for Beal, like he just wasn't going to get that kind of equity anywhere else. And, and he wasn't going to have the opportunity to be the face of a franchise. And that's got to be worth something. Yeah. And I think, you know, there's like the human element to it as well, where all that stuff you mentioned for sure, I think factored in, not just the financial stuff, his equity to the franchise that he probably saw, you know, would not be the same anywhere else. But also just, you know, I think so many times we fans, media, everybody looks at the situation is like, okay, you got this guy kind of in his prime or approaching his prime, who's a borderline superstar, is going to get max money regardless, you know, he should want to be in a winning situation or in a more glamorous market or whatever the case may be. And it's like, man, at the end of the day, these guys are very similar to the rest of us in that if they're in a situation where maybe they're comfortable and you know they're happy with what they're making and he's clearly happy financially and his family is settled there and he just likes being there you know I'm not saying that winning isn't everything because I understand that in in pro sports it kind of is but at the same time it's not right like when you're talking about things on a human level and guys having families and putting down roots places like sometimes that stuff really does trump even winning and because sports is just so much different than any other profession it is kind of hard to make apples to apples comparisons but i find it's always helpful to just sort of put yourself in that situation where you're living somewhere with your family that you're super comfortable where they treat you like gold right exactly and maybe there is an opportunity for you to be in a slightly better professional situation somewhere else but that would require you to uproot your own life the life of your family members and go and work in like a foreign environment where you maybe don't have the same kind of sweat equity and you aren't valued to the same extent. Like, I I don't think it would be the easy decision that it's sometimes made out to be for these professional athletes. So I totally get that from his end. Um, And a couple questions I have about it. One is, you know, does this maybe goose the market for some other potentially available players? You know, does this make Chris Paul suddenly more tradable? Uh, does this mean that the Raptors might be able to get more for Kyle Lowry than they would have otherwise? You know, is DeMar DeRozan suddenly a more attractive trade piece? Is my Paisan in Oklahoma City <laughs> going to be rescued from Oklahoma City? Yeah, so I I wonder if there might be kind of a domino effect here where every other potentially available player suddenly is just that much more enticing and that much more valuable to a team that might trade for them. And the other question is, like, Beal was one of these guys who was going to be a free agent in 2021... And I think CJ McCollum was one of those guys as well, who has also extended his contract. You know, Giannis is potentially going to sign a Supermax at the end of this season. I think PG and Kawhi, we more or less expect to remain in Los Angeles in some form or fashion. 
Is the entire league just sort of hoarding cap space for a free agent bonanza that might not actually come to fruition? Almost certainly. <laughs> yeah. It just the seems entire like, NBA is nixing right now. It just seems like the, you know this 2021 free agent class has been talked up so much, and it just almost feels like it's become second nature to all these teams to just keep their cap sheet clean for that summer. And it, it seems like we might end up in a situation where one by one, these free agents that are projected to be available that summer might just start to come off of the board. And even if, to, like, say Giannis Antetokounmpo and Paul George actually do um, change teams in 2021, that's two guys. Mm-hmm. There could be, you know, a, pluth- a plethora of teams with max cap space hoarding it, thinking they're in the running, and only two of them are out there. Like, you know what I mean? It, it could be a free agent bonanza, and yet most teams will come out of it losers just because that's the way it works. So, yeah. Yeah, that's all I have on the Beal thing. I, I was surprised by it as well. I've been saying all summer that I didn't think he would extend and that basically once he turned down the extension, he would immediately become a trade candidate. So yeah. that obviously didn't happen. And uh, I mean, good on the Wizards. Like they, they bought themselves a little more time is what I'll say. And uh, if they can convince him, even if they don't make the playoffs this season or aren't particularly competitive this season, if they can convince him that they're moving in the right direction, then maybe he is there long term. From two guys who sign extensions to two guys who look like they're not going to, Buddy Heald and Demontis Sabonis, neither one of them has signed an extension right now with the uh, Kings and or Pacers, and both have had some pretty interesting comments over the last few days. Buddy Heald, after I believe it was their final preseason game, spoke about potentially needing to find a new home if they can't get a deal done before Monday's 6 p.m. deadline, even though he would still be a restricted free agent next summer. Sabonis, uh, I don't remember exactly what his comments are, but he... Well, there's a report that the Pacers might be listening to trade offers for him. Right. Um, and, and I think he, he also made some sort of comments about how like he, he now knows how the, the team feels about him or something along those lines. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it just sort of goes to show you how kind of tenuous these situations are and how touchy they can be and maybe gives you some insight into why... The Raptors gave Siakam the max when they did and why the Nuggets did the same thing with Jamal Murray and why the Sixers did the same thing with Ben Simmons. And it's easy for me to sit here and say, well, you should just wait because there's no real benefit to you as a team maxing a guy out before you have to when you can just maintain his restricted rights. Uh, It does seem like these relationships can fracture in an instant. And even for someone like Buddy Heald, who I look at Buddy Heald and I don't see a max player, to me, like the Kings offering him four years, $90 million. Like that seems like a pretty reasonable deal to me. I understand him looking at the market and saying another team is going to give me more than that. But I also don't look at that offer and think that that's an insult or a slap in the face to Buddy Heald. So uh, the way that these players value themselves and and what they expect out of their organizations, as far as the the commitment that um, in Buddy Heald's case, he would like to see going both ways because, as he said, he was ready to commit to the Kings. And what other free agent had the Kings signed and in he recent history? specifically brought up Sacramento's free agent history. Which was pretty cold. I, and also factual. It is factual. And I think, you know, look, so often these things are PR battles in a way. And, and for Buddy Heald, like, he is appealing, I think... To the public and to like Kings fans in a way. And, and I think he's hoping that this is going to put a ton of pressure on the Kings front office because, you know, if if this is all done behind closed doors, then the front office can spin it any which way they want. But with this playing out in public, I think he'll gave himself sort of a chance to get out ahead of this thing. 
and make it known that he wants to sign and that it's the Kings who are not offering him what he feels he deserves. But like you said, I don't know. Like he doesn't have a ton of leverage here. He's saying, I'm going to have to go and find a new home, but he's going to be an RFA. The Kings can still match any offer sheet he signs next summer. The only real cudgel that he has to wield here is that qualifying offer. And to date, we still have not seen a player turn down, you know, a potential 10-figure salary in order to sign a one-year qualifying offer. We didn't get a chance to find out if Porzingis was bluffing or not. So, Yeah, and I don't know if you've seen the... When was it? Buddy Heald made a shot, and then... I don't know if it was like a scrimmage or something, and... It, or the last preseason game, he made a shot and then flashed like a money sign to Vladi Divac. Yeah, I mean, but it and, seemed and it seemed very cordial. They were, because they they were, were joking la- around. Yeah, they were laughing um, about it. I don't yeah, know. Maybe I they know it was something like a, we don't. <laughs> maybe there is a deal coming. Yeah, maybe so. And again, the deadline's at six p.m. today, so by the time this comes out, yeah. this may all be moot. Um, it was notable that I believe was it Sam Amick who reported that uh, the Kings were feeling some remorse about the Harrison Barnes contract, which yeah. who could have possibly seen that coming? That's exactly what I was going to say when we were talking about free agents not choosing Sacramento and Buddy Heald, you know, being a perfect fit there with the rest of their young guys. And say what you will about Buddy Heald not being the, the type of max player you think about when you hear the words max player, but as you mentioned, he's if he has the year he had last year, he's getting max money in the summer, whether it's from another team and the Kings have to match, but he's getting max money. So he is, you know, by definition, a max player because he's going to get that money. Yeah. If you're you're sac- worth whatever someone's willing to exactly. pay. Exactly. And if you're Sacramento, it's not like this is some over-the-hill vet. Like, he's a young guy who's blossoming, who is one of the elite shooters and might become one of the elite scorers in the game. He wants to stay in Sacramento, which in and of itself is a victory for Sacramento. Don't get cute with them, you know? And and I understand what you're saying too. Like maybe maybe you don't have to give a max money and like why commit to that now instead of next year? Well, mm-hmm. But you're kind of seeing, I know some of it is just Buddy Heald posturing, but you're kind of seeing why in some ways you do want to get it done as soon as possible because you don't want to create this type of friction with one of your young, potentially franchise players. And Heald's team reportedly was pushing for four years, 110 million. So that's not quite a max deal. Right. And if you get out of this with a little bit of a discount, I think you do that. I just don't think you can afford to, you know, alienate Heald, who, like you said, is going to be one of their franchise building blocks, or at least projects to be. He had an unbelievable three-point shooting season last year. There are things about his player profile that concern me a bit. Like, I don't know that he's ever going to be even a league average defender. Uh, He isn't much of a playmaker, although I think he's expanded his off-the-dribble game a little bit over the years. Um but to just have a guy like that who can shoot the ball the way that he can shoot it, who I think makes for a really good backcourt partner with De'Aaron Fox just because of how well he runs the floor and his ability to kind of stop and pop as a trailer on the break. So ultimately, I wouldn't be surprised if that deal does get done before the 6 p.m. deadline today. But, you know, obviously not off to a great start. And like the Kings, again, like they're going to find themselves in a real financial crunch in these next couple of years, which is... Which is why, or at least was part of the reason that I was so down on that Harrison Barnes contract when it happened. Just because I knew that this was coming. Like, they're, they're going to have to pay Heald. They are going to have to pay De'Aaron Fox next summer. Like, he's going to be extension eligible. And once again, like, that's a guy that you are going to have to max out on the first day that you can possibly max him out. And a summer after that, suddenly Bagley is up for an extension. Like, life comes at you fast in the NBA. And I just didn't think it was such a forward-thinking move to 
shell out all that money to a guy who I don't think really figured to be part of their rotation well into the future. Before we move on to Sabonis, just real quick. So Buddy Heald last year averaged 20.7 points per game. He's a career 41.9% three-point shooter. And do you know how many games Buddy Heald has missed in three NBA seasons? I feel like it's like three or four. A grand total of two. Yeah, so for all those reasons, like his shooting ability, his durability. Obviously, you look at his age maybe as being kind of a concern as far as what his upside might be. But this is a guy who, by all accounts, is a tireless worker. And, you know, somewhat similar to Siakam in that way. I think I prefer to look at NBA experience as a measure of how much better a guy can get. And if a guy is young, but he's been in the league for like five years and he hasn't shown much meaningful growth. (laughs) Andrew Wiggins. Sure. (laughs) To To name one example. I think that's more of an indicator to me than just a guy's age. And if, you know, Buddy Heald is, what, is he 27 now? 26. He'll be 27 in a couple months. Um, so that's old for a guy who's coming off of his rookie contract. But when you look at the growth curve there, I think that bodes better than somebody who's like, say, 23, but has been in the league just as long and hasn't shown that same kind of growth. You got any thoughts on Sabonis? Because I'm sure you do, Mr. Pacer. Uh, I just think... Like they shouldn't, they shouldn't trade him. Even if they don't come to an extension agreement, I, I don't see the point of dealing him before they see what it actually looks like. For me, like I kind of have higher hopes for Sabonis in terms of his Pacers future than I do with Miles Turner. So do I. As much as like Miles Turner, I think is a little bit more plug and play, and that almost makes me feel like he would be the better trade chip because what team in the NBA wouldn't love an elite shot blocker who can also step out and hit threes? Like that skill set is just going to be so valuable to so many different teams. For the Pacers and the team that I see them building there, I feel like Sabonis, a guy who can really be an offensive hub, who can play make, who is good enough defensively, I think, to man the five on a full-time basis. Just given how good I think he can be offensively, I see his defense as being more or less passable. And I don't know, man. Like, Turner's offensive skill set is just so underdeveloped still. And, I like, I know he can hit that three, but his in-between game is just pretty much non-existent, right? He can't really handle. He's not much of a passer. Sabonis can do so many different things, right? As a short roller as a post-up guy and he's shown some ability to shoot it too so if they need that from him like if they need him to provide a little bit of stretch then he can do that in a pinch I don't think that's making the best use of him but I just think that he gives you so much possibility at the offensive end and again I don't think he's taking enough off the table defensively for for that to really be a difference maker in terms of how you value those two players so I'd be willing to ride it out this season and see how they look Sharing the center position, but also overlapping for probably 15 or 20 minutes a game, which I feel like is the plan. I don't love the idea of Sabonis playing the four, but I think he can handle it in spots. That's just defensively, right? Offensively, I think you're, you're thinking of Turner more so being the four because he's the guy who's providing the stretch where Sabonis can kind of play in the middle. I think there are ways that it can work. 
I don't see it working long term. I agree probably they're going to just to maximize their roster, like they're gonna have to trade one of those guys because they need help on the wing, like at the three four spot. Maybe it's reading too much into Sabonis' comments, but I've never been more certain that one of them is going to get dealt like this year. Oh yeah, and I think that the writing was on the wall when they drafted Goga Batadze, yeah. right? Like yeah. I think they were sort of telegraphing that and they know that they're gonna have to make a decision. I just don't think that they should force themselves to make that decision just yet. Like, even if they don't come to an extension, they don't come to an extension. But They like, still have the leverage in the situation. Exactly. And they can wait and see, like, start the season, see how the first 20 or so games go. And maybe Sabonis elevates himself to the point that he's the guy they decide that they want to keep. And ultimately, if they don't come to that extension, you know, Turner is going to be a better trade ship, not just because of what I said about how many different rosters he might be able to fit on. But the fact that he has this extremely tradable contract where he's making like $18 million a season, and if you want to bring back an impact player in return, it's going to be a whole lot easier, I think, working with Miles Turner's contract than it is working with Sabonis's, you know, whatever he's making, like 4 or $5 million. Last piece of news before we get to predictions. Zion Williamson. Such a bummer. Uh, <laughs> it's not a major injury. Sounds like there's no structural damage, but... He's going to be sidelined for what sounds like a couple weeks, a few weeks with some knee soreness. He's going to miss the season, literally the season opener, not just the Pelican season opener, but the NBA season opener, which is the Pelicans in Toronto. Are you concerned at all about the various injuries Zion has dealt with early in his career, like collegiate, NBA, whatever, and, and just his frame? You know, it's a very unique physical toolbox he's working with i'd say uh, yeah um, is it concerning to you or are you only looking at this through the prism of it's just a bummer for opening night in the first couple of weeks no i i'm concerned he, he's dealt with injuries now on both of his knees uh since starting his nba career and like you say we we haven't really seen anybody with this frame before i think it's more so we haven't seen anybody with this frame who plays the way that he plays right. Like, how many guys have you seen who are 280 pounds who jump that high? And can somebody who's 280 pounds and jumps that high and continually lands with all of that weight avoid, you know, major injuries throughout his career? Like, that that would give me some concern. And honestly, the the language was really vague about how much time he was going to miss, right? I think, what did they say? A few weeks? Like, yeah. it was super vague. Yeah. So, I don't, like, if I set the over-under at 55 games for how many games he plays in his rookie season, would you take the over or the under? under so yeah i mean immediately that that is concerning and i we'll get to our predictions in a minute like i was tempted to put the pelicans in the playoff picture in the west before this broke i don't think i was going to but now i definitely feel pretty comfortable having them outside of that playoff picture just because i don't know that i have faith in him playing even two-thirds of this season Zion, by the way, is 6'6", 6'7", 285 pounds, so what he's listed at. So for some perspective, that's five pounds lighter than Boban. Yeah, I mean, it's... Zion's the second heaviest player in the NBA. And look, he's made it work for him. You know, I'm not even calling into question his conditioning or anything. I'm just, he's made it work for him. And he is a absolute freak of nature. Like yeah. this guy's 6'6", 6'7", six, 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 five pounds lighter than Boban at 285 and probably has the best vert and first bounce in the league, right? Like he... This is exactly what made him such an right. exciting prospect, you know, because we just never seen anybody that big, that strong with his athleticism. Yeah. 
but again, there is a downside to that, which is, you know, that maybe his body just really isn't built to sustain the level of stress that's going to be put on it, just given how he plays. I'm just sitting here and like I I knew he was big, but man, <laughs> two eighty five. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Um, and, and I don't know. I mean, maybe this will turn out to just be like hyper precautionary. And he he will come back after a couple of weeks and and just look every bit as dominant as he did in the preseason, and then go on to have a mostly healthy rookie year, and this will all be forgotten. But I think there are some red flags, just given the fact that he has already basically gotten injured, but three times since the start of summer league, and th- there has to be some measure of concern there. I think. Yeah, all right, unless you, you've got any other thoughts on any news around the association, I say let's get to our predictions. But before that, let's do a small giveaway that I promise. So we've got, uh, you can be a Raptors fan, you can just be a general collector of NBA history and someone who appreciates NBA history. We've got the official NBA Entertainment Raptors Championship video. It's a Blu-ray and DVD and it's going to be potentially yours or one of our listeners. How do you want to do this? You want should they should they tweet at both of us? Should they tweet one of us? Since both of our Twitter usernames are somewhat confusing, <laughs> mine with the spelling of my last name and yours with the fact that it's not your last name. <laughs> um, yeah, why don't you have them tweet at you? Since right. uh, it's a little easier handle. To, so uh, here's what I'm going to say: If you're listening to this podcast right now, and you want a free copy of the official NBA Entertainment Raptors Championship video. Tweet the correct spelling of Pascal Siakam's last name to at Joseph Cacharo. That's J-O-S-E-P-H-C-A-S-C-I-A-R-O, all one word. And if you're wondering why that specific answer will get you this DVD, the correct spelling of Siakam's last name, well, let's just say it's an Easter egg for you when you eventually have a copy of this in your hands and you'll understand. So first person after this podcast goes up to correctly spell Siakam's last name in a tweet to myself, we'll get this DVD. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back with our predictions for the 2019-20 NBA season. What's up, Pound the Rock listeners? Just a friendly reminder to rate, review, and subscribe to Pound the Rock on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd also encourage you to check out The Score's other sports podcasts. For Major League Baseball, there's Expand the Zone. For soccer, we've got Sweeper Keeper. Puck Pursuit has you covered for the NHL. And the Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone tackles, you guessed it, fantasy football. And in case you haven't already, please download The Score app, which is available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our featured content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. All right, it's what we've been waiting all summer for. Telling Pound the Rock listeners how we predict the season will go. And it's going to go the way we say it will go because, you know, what is this season if not predictable? Let's start with the East. I'm going to go through my eight playoff teams. I can, I can go beyond that too, right to the bottom, the basement of yeah, the Yeah, let's East. go one through 15. All right. So I've got Philly first, Milwaukee second. Okay. Wow. Um, yeah. Disagreement right off the top. I have the Bucks number one. And... We've talked a lot about what that playoff matchup might look like just because I think we and a whole lot of other NBA observers expect that to be the matchup that decides who wins the Eastern Conference. And I think it's very close in terms of a playoff matchup. I think in terms of regular season wins, 
I think the Bucks are miles ahead. I just don't like. I have too many questions about Philly and what their offense is going to look like. Bringing all these new pieces together to have confidence picking them to win more games than the Bucks, whose whose formula for regular season success is tried and true, who have you know to me the best player in the world and a, and a solid supporting cast that complements him really well. Uh, they know who they are. They know that how they want to play. Um, and I just see them ripping through the East and winning, you know, close to 60 games once again. I just yeah. don't see that happening for Philly. I'll be honest with you. Everything you said makes sense. I just wanted to be a bit of a contrarian because I knew you'd go Milwaukee. Okay. One, but uh, we'll talk about the playoff matchup later. I think I think it makes sense that the Bucs would win more games. I also just have a – and they looked pretty damn good in the preseason. Not that that means much. But I had a weird feeling about the Bucks, And I know I've been talking about it all summer how, like, I don't know. I'm just, there's that concern within me that they're going to be, like – four and three or something and there's gonna be one random headline about Giannis and then it's just gonna like curtail everything and I don't I don't know why I feel that way there's no reason to feel that way but you know a gut gut feels sometimes a gut you feel, gotta go with your yeah. gut so um, I got Philly one Milwaukee okay. two Toronto three I also have Toronto three the four five to me is gonna be actually four five six to me I had a really hard time separating them and it's between Boston Miami and Brooklyn I I like the heat a lot in the East, at least. Um, I think they can contend for the three seed. I think they're, uh, you know, I mentioned it on the podcast that I think they are going to be as tough and grimy to play against as any team outside of the Clippers and definitely any team in the East. I feel like they're just, they've got this mean streak about them, but not in a Bush League way, like in an actual good basketball team way that I don't think a team like Boston, for example, can keep up with them. I'm not even sure Brooklyn can without KD. I, I'm kind of inclined to go Miami 4 and wow. then have Boston, Brooklyn 5 6. I've got Orlando 7. Go, as, do, as do I. Going a little off the board and putting the Bulls in the playoffs. Okay. Um, I have the Pacers at 8. Okay. Um, I also have the Magic at 7. I put the Celtics 4, Heat 5, Nets 6. Okay. And actually, I feel pretty confident in the Celtics being 4. I had more difficulty choosing between the Heat and Nets at 5-6. And, you know, with the Heat, it's like I really believe in their defense, but I don't so much believe in their offense. And with the Nets, I really believe in their offense and really don't believe in their defense. Like, I am quite concerned about Brooklyn's defense, and that's kind of what it came down to to me. I think if you want to win a lot of regular season games, I think having a reliably solid defense is the way to do that. And I also just think, like, the Heat, if you look at their numbers last year— They were one of the worst crunch time teams in the league. They had the single worst crunch time offense in the league. Their offensive rating in the clutch was 94.7. And Jimmy Butler is the closer that they just haven't had. Um, And and they've gotten by these past few years on just sort of being tough and relentless and playing smart and moving and cutting a lot and sharing the ball. They've had to kind of fashion together this egalitarian offense just because they haven't had a high-end primary creator and now they have that guy, and I think that's going to help them a ton to get across the finish line in close games. All right, let's talk about our respective eight seeds. I've got Chicago. You've got Indiana. Neither of us have Detroit in the playoffs. For me, it came down to those three teams. Um, I just don't trust the Pacers when I don't trust the return of Victor Oladipo. We don't know when it's going to be, and we don't know what he's going to look like when he comes back. Mm-hmm. And we've discussed the scoring issues that team's going to have without him. Detroit, I still think, is that solidly mediocre like 38 39 win team that they perennially are with Chicago I just don't I sorry with Chicago I think there's this upside there that I don't necessarily think is there with those other two teams and 
I'm upside a lot of times in the regular season, there's just this feeling of like hope that almost just makes playing those February and March games mean something in a way that maybe to a team like the Pistons, they just won't, you know, if they're like 10 games under 500 and two and a half games out of a playoff spot and you're se- third best players, Luke Kennard. Like, maybe you're just not showing up on some night in the winter. Showing a lot of faith in the Eastern Conference there. Ten games (laughs) under 500, and they're two and a half games out of a playoff spot. But whereas the Chicago, it's like they haven't been there in a while. They've got some young, hungry guys. Mm -hmm. Um, They've got players with upside. Kobe White looked great in the preseason. And and so for a team like that, if they're 10 games under 500 in January, February, they're still looking at us like, hey, we're playing for Mm -hmm. something here. And I, I think that does matter in the depressing conference that is the NBA's Eastern Conference and so almost by process of elimination because I don't trust the Pacers with Oladipo out and because I think there's like an apathy around the Pistons I'm giving it to the Bulls I've heard a lot of buzz about the Bulls and their playoff prospects and I do get it like I think there's enough talent there to snag a playoff spot in the East but who's the best passer on this team it's like Sadoransky. I think it's Sadoransky. Probably Sadoransky. Who's like a fine passer, but if that's your best passer, I just like I, I don't. It might be Coach Boylan. I mean, I, I yeah, it's like I don't know how their offense really is going to function. I know like Zach Levine can go and create his own shot, and like he's doing it pretty damn efficiently. Like I think he was close to fifty-eight percent true shooting last year. Like he really took a step as far as being able to score at a pretty efficient clip despite a questionable shot selection at times. So maybe it doesn't matter as much as I think it's going to. I just, the lack of playmaking here would give me some concern. And uh, I don't think that their defense, as much as like they, they had a real infusion of defensive talent, just getting Thaddeus Young, having Otto Porter for a full season, you know, hoping to get a full season out of Wendell Carter, Sadoransky, and then, you know, maybe baking in some improvement for Lowry Markinen on that end. Like, I think they'll be a lot better defensively than they were last year, but their defense, at best, I think is going to be like middle of the pack. So to get into the playoffs, I guess their offense needs to be middle of the pack as well. And that's where I'm not so sure they can get to. All right. Um, So quickly, tell me why your Pacers are going to snag the eight seed. I just think that there's like enough institutional knowledge there that even without Oladipo for the first bit of the season, they're going to be able to stay afloat. I think Nate McMillan is really well equipped to coach a kind of underdog team with a bit of a talent deficit, just because they're going to play super hard every night, even though they lost a couple of anchors of their defense. Well, mainly just one, right? Like Thaddeus Young. I still think they have a defensive system that's going to work for them. Um, Like they're going to be really aggressive at the point of attack I think not having Oladipo there is going to make things tougher at that end too, but Brogdon can replicate a lot of what Oladipo gives you just in terms of his strength, um, his ability to pressure the ball. He's not going to create as many turnovers, but like you have Miles Turner at the back end to clean everything up, and I think that just gives everybody else a little bit more license to be more aggressive on the ball. So I think their defense is going to continue to be strong. I think they can scrape together enough offense, and like I said, that's contingent, I think, on Sabonis making another leap at that end of the floor where he actually is a hub that they can play through because they don't have a lot of off-the-dribble creation. So he's going to have to be the guy who's orchestrating the offense, I think, whether it's from the top or from the post, from the elbow, on the short roll. I think he's capable of doing that. And um, his ability to pass and create shots for others is going to be vital in keeping that offense humming. I think they'll have enough at that end, along with a really stout defense, to 
be where they need to be when Oladipo comes back. And even if Oladipo isn't the guy he was before he got injured, I think he's still going to give them a spark that's going to lift them toward, you know, I, I think like 43-ish wins, wow. which to me should be more than good enough to get into the playoffs. I think the Pacers are going to have a losing record. It's uh, totally reasonable. Like it's 100% possible. And again, just like so much is contingent on when Oladipo comes back and how good he is. And And I don't like what kind of history do we have to draw on when it comes to guys recovering from like a ruptured quad? It's just such a rare injury. And I going to have to pull the tape of when triple H did that in wrestling and how quickly he came (laughs) back. Um, And, and it is like his game is really predicated on explosiveness and athleticism. And without it, it's tough to envision what he's going to look like or how effective he's going to be. All right. Pistons, the only thing I'm going to say is free Blake Griffin. And unless you have any thoughts on the Pistons, I think we can leave that there. Um, yeah, I have them in ninth. Yeah. Like, like, <laughs> that's so Pistons. Um, uh, the rest of the East, after we we mentioned 10 teams, I've got Atlanta 11. Same. Um, I've got Charlotte 15th, the Knicks 14th, Cavs 13th, Washington 12th, or 12 13 flip them. It doesn't really matter. Uh, do we agree on the Hornets as the worst team in this conference? I actually have the Cavs at 15. Oh, okay, wow. Um, because I expect them to trade Kevin Love, and without him, I just don't think that there are enough competent NBA players on this team to keep them out of the basement. I think their defense is just going to be appallingly bad. And the Hornets, yeah, like their offense might be dead last. Their best in the player was Terry Rozier, man. It's tough, for sure. Like they're, they're, they're talent-strapped, without a doubt. They're going to be bad. But I think that they actually have a decent amount of defensive talent, like to the point that they could maybe be even like in the top 20 in defense. <laughs> no, seriously. No, I'm not laughing at, at the fact that The bar is they, very low. I'm like, saying they just have to be better I'm than laughing the Cavs. at the fact that we're saying, like, wow, it could be top two-thirds. Like, <laughs> that's what's funny to me. Oh, well, we're talking about the 14th and 15th teams yeah. in the East. You know, that's where we're at. But, I mean, that might be good enough for them to be better than the Cavs. If they're like 18th in defense and 30th in offense, and like to me, the, the, the Cavs last year had the worst defensive rating in recorded history. Yes. Did they get any better defensively no. this offseason? No, absolutely not. Okay, so if the Hornets do have a top 20 defense, think about how good the Cavs offense is going to have to be for them to be better than that, assuming that they're probably going to have something close to the worst defense of all time once again. Here's what this conversation's led me to believe. It's that even though we both make a living writing and talking about basketball, I still will actively try to avoid watching a single minute of Cavs or Hornets basketball this season. I don't really mean that, but if anyone's listening no, to this conversation, that. that's what they'll take from this. Let, there's, always, just... there's always something to look, to, to look for and watch for. And like Miles Bridges is one of my breakout candidates this year. I think he's a really exciting player to watch. Darius Garland seems like he's going to be super fun to watch. Darius so. Garland might be the Cavs best player once they trade Kevin Love. And that's, that's saying <laughs> Entirely something. possible. Uh, all right, let's move to the West. Okay. A lot more quality in this conference. Give me your list this time. I got Nuggets number one. I like it. Um, you know, we talked about this a couple times before. I just think their depth at every position, I think, just makes them so well-built for the regular season. Uh, I love their balance. Uh, the fact that there is so little overlap between the skill sets of their best players, how well all those players figure to play off of Jokic. And really, the fact that Outside of a Jokic injury, I don't see anything that can really blow this team off course, right? Like, even if Jamal Murray were to get injured, I think they'd be fine plugging that gap for, like, a month. 
and, and wouldn't lose too much. Um, and that's what I mean when I say like their depth makes them so well built for the regular season. Like this team had a really tough time with injuries last year. Um, and it, it didn't really matter. They won 54 games, uh, despite losing Gary Harris for extended stretches, Paul Millsap for extended stretches. Uh, they were banged up and, and it didn't slow them down. So I think as, as long as Jokic stays healthy, I think they have the goods to be the number one seed. I got the Clippers number two, uh, just because I think once Paul George does come back, again, their combination of top-end talent and depth, to me, even if they aren't pushing it throughout the regular season, like they're still going to be good enough and deep enough to, to be the second-best team record-wise. Do you have any disagreement there? No. Nope, so far. Uh, I have the Jazz number three. Okay, so I, I've got the Jazz a little lower than that, but I, I were, think the were, were you swayed at all by their zero and five preseason? I was they not gave up like one hundred and thirty points. I a was game? not. I actually didn't even realize they were zero and five until last night when I quickly just went through the entire preseason standings just to see if I didn't really care about like twenty five of the teams in the middle. I just wanted to see if anyone went undefeated or posted a crazy positive net rating, which the Bucks did, and if anyone was on the other end and the Jazz were. and that, I mean, it was surprising. I don't think it'll mean anything, but I've got them a little lower. Um, so you got Jazz 3. Lakers 4. Okay. Uh, Rockets 5. And this is, so basically after 5, like I, I feel pretty confident in those five teams all making the same, playoffs. Same, and I feel confident in them finishing in the top five. Yeah. Um, and then after that, I think any of these teams to me could slide out of the playoffs. Um, and that's Blazers at six, Warriors at seven, and Spurs at eight. Yeah. I mean, any difference in, in playoff teams for you? No. We've got the exact same eight teams. I think 95% of the people listening to this will probably agree with those eight teams. I think a lot of people would have the Spurs not making it. I mean, who do you have in there then? Dallas, Sacramento, New Orleans? I Like, if Zion... Any, any one of those three teams, yeah. like Yeah, like any one of them could snag a playoff spot but like san antonio is just so much of a safer pick Mm -hmm. and i don't think san antonio's ceiling is necessarily that high but i think their floor barring injury is is right around that like seven eight seed and i just trust a popovich coach team with that high of a floor more than i trust like the potential of dallas or sacramento or new orleans who's going to miss zion for a few weeks yeah, it's really hard to bet against a Popovich coach team making the playoffs. They finished sixth in offensive rating last year, which is wild considering how anachronistic their offense was, how few three-pointers they shot, how many mid-range jumpers they shot. I know they shot a ridiculous percentage on pretty much all of their jumpers, whether it was from three-point range or mid-range, and maybe they can't replicate that. I think losing... Davis Bertans is actually going to hurt them quite a bit in that regard. He was really key to what their bench unit did, and their bench unit is pretty much what propelled them last season to 48 wins. They were not especially good with Aldridge and DeRozan on the floor together. If Murray's jumper hasn't improved from the last time we saw them, then I think it's going to be a really tenuous fit with their starting lineup. And they weren't even starting Derek White, actually, in the preseason. They were starting Bryn Forbes just because they needed some measure of shooting in the starting lineup. But I think at the same time, part of what makes me really excited about this team is the backcourt pairing of Derek White and DeJounte Murray, just because I think the defensive upside of that backcourt is out of this world. It's insane. But is there enough shooting there to to make that your starting backcourt? I mean, I think there could be, as long as you're not starting Pirtle at center. Start Aldridge at the five, maybe you slide Rudy Gay in there at the four to open things up a bit, and then maybe it can start to work. 
if if you had to, I know neither of us actually picked any of them to make the playoffs, but if you had to bet on one of New Orleans, Sacramento, or Dallas, or any other West team that you think is... I think those are the three teams right, that have the best chance. So if, if you had to bet on one of those teams, stealing a playoff spot from one of the eight teams we mentioned, mm-hmm. who would it be? I guess the Mavs, um, but I think there's so little separation. Like, I, I, I honestly... I couldn't even differentiate between those three teams. Like I have them ranked. I have Mavs nine, Pelicans ten, Kings eleven. But you could really put that in any order, and yeah. I could see like those teams being separated by like one game in the standings. I think they're all pretty good, and they're all flawed to a certain extent. I just think as far as the top end talent, and I'm really just talking about the top two players because I don't know who the third best player on the Mavs would be. But like, I mean, maybe De'Aaron Fox is the best player. At all those teams, maybe it's Drew Holiday, maybe it's Zion. Like I guess, I, I don't really know. You know, by 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 season's end, I, I think actually, because the Doncic Porzingis fit is so sound, and because I think it works at both ends of the floor, that's what maybe gives me a little bit more confidence in Dallas than in those other teams. And again, if if Zion was going to be healthy throughout the season, like if I knew that, I think I would pick the Pelicans. But uh, without knowing that, I don't know that I can go there. Yeah, I'll, I'll go Sacramento. I think uh, I think Dallas' ceiling maybe is a little higher, but mm-hmm. I think Sacramento's just the better team. And with Zion out, especially if we're talking about all three, I think Sacramento's actually top to bottom the best team of those three until we get some yeah. answers on Zion. Sacramento and New Orleans are both quite a bit deeper than yeah. Dallas, I think. It's insane to think about. Like, a year ago, we could have... And I think I did come into last season thinking the Kings were by far the worst team in the West or like the second worst team in the West at best. And then they didn't have a lot of upside. They didn't have their pick going into last year. And now a year later, we're sitting there after like a, a breakout year for them, talking about how they, they're right back in the West playoff mix and they're the deepest out of teams like, you know, New Orleans and Dallas. Right. You got Minnesota or OKC 12? Minnesota. Okay, so OKC 13? Yeah. And then um, who do you got as the worst team in the West, Phoenix or Memphis? Memphis. Same. Just because I, I don't think they have the same impetus to try and win games that the Suns are going to. Mm-hmm. The Grizzlies, I think, you know, their season is just all about seeing what they have in their young players, regardless of whether they're winning games or not. And I, I think when a team is in that position, they're going to just be throwing a lot of shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. And that is maybe going to cost them some games, but they don't really have to care. And in fact, it's in their best interest to lose games because they need to keep their draft pick. Whereas the Suns, I think, are desperate to cobble together anything resembling a competent season and like show anything resembling progress, even if it is just like winning 30 games. They've just been so bad for so long. And, you know, they brought in some professionals, right? Like they bring in Rubio and they bring in Baines. And, you know, you get another year of development from Booker and Aiton. And that pick and roll combination, I think, still has the potential to be pretty deadly. So I, I just think ultimately that they're going to wind up with a better record than the Yeah, Grizzlies. I think Phoenix should actually be pretty decent and entertaining on the offensive end. And I think I've mentioned it before. I think Rubio, you know, he's no star, but I think he brings a type of like steady point guard play. Mm-hmm. Um, that they just haven't had in forever. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I think that the Suns will be improved enough that they'll be better than Memphis. And I think Memphis has a lot of upside. We talked about how fun this team could be. Uh, they should be a really fun league pass watch, but I do not see them winning many games, if even 20. Yeah. Um, I feel like every season there is at least one team in either conference that is like unexpectedly bad, that just totally flops, and one team in each conference that is 
out of left field, just way better than anybody thinks. So if you had to pick in each conference, who would those teams be? In the East, bad would be Indiana, and I've given my reasons why. Uh-huh. But with that, I don't. All right, that's fine. I don't know if that would be like totally out of left field, like that team just totally flopped. But I, out of the teams in the East that should make the playoffs, like I, I just the East is too bad for me to think <laughs> any of those teams will flop. Like I yeah. don't maybe Brooklyn, mm-hmm. but even that, like it's hard. For, they're not going to miss the playoffs. I don't think. Yeah, I don't think so either. So I, I'll go with Indiana just because most people still have them making the playoffs, and mm-hmm. I actually think I had them. I think tenth, but I think they could be even worse if things really go off the rails. In terms of a team in the East that I think could surprise people, it's Atlanta. And and they're still really young and really raw. And I think they're going to be really bad defensively. But like Really bad. Really bad defensively. But man, Trey Young can be so good. And John Collins is already pretty good. Um, Lloyd Pierce is a good coach. Like They've got something going there. And again, we're talking about the East where like they got hot, you know, even for a couple months and just stay above water the, the rest of the months. And they win like 37 or 38 games and make the playoffs. To me, that is a like a... Pretty big surprising season. Mm-hmm. So I'll go with Atlanta because I think they're capable of that. In the West, disappointing. Maybe, I don't know, like, do the Warriors count? I don't know. Like, Yeah, no, I mean, like, Warriors missing the playoffs, I still think would register as a pretty yeah. big surprise. So I guess the Warriors. That's um, the kind of thing where we might look back and be like, oh, we should have seen this right. coming. But And then in terms of a team that could surprise, Oklahoma City. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that there's a, a path there where if they stay healthy and Hang on to Chris Paul, Danilo Gallinari, and Steven Adams. They actually have a potentially elite offense and a really solid starting five. And then it's just can they cobble enough to together enough minutes from their bench to like be a 42 win team and hang in the West playoff race? I, you know, again, they're capable of that. That's probably their ceiling, but that would be a pretty big shocker. Yeah. I mean, if they had a half decent bench, I would put them maybe even in that. Like uh, that category with the Pelicans, Kings, and Mavs as being like a fringe playoff team, but their bench is just such a train wreck. Um, I think the Wolves might surprise some people. Nice. I really believe in Carl Towns, and I really believe in Robert Covington. They played really well when they got him last season, and I think they maybe have a trade to make as well. So, you know who I don't believe in? In case you uh, haven't picked it up by listening to Pound the Rock, is uh, Andrew Wiggins. (laughs) Andrew Wiggins. I'm trying to find Andrew Wiggins. I had tweeted it, but Andrew Wiggins during the preseason oh there it is four preseason games Wiggins average 10 points on 31 25 50 shooting but remember there are not 100 players in the league yeah. who are better than him no there's there might at be least 200 yeah <laughs> all right let's uh, get into some award picks yeah oh let's or do you want to do conference finals and finals we'll oh yeah, yeah, that yeah, to yeah. The end. okay um i have bucks over sixers in the conference finals i have sixers over bucks again i think the sixers have a higher ceiling I think in a playoff matchup, defensively, they have what it takes to slow down Milwaukee's offense. Uh, it's just a certainty thing, and I have more certainty about the Bucks than I have with the Sixers, and this to me is too close to really call. I wouldn't be surprised to see it go either way. I just feel more comfortable with what I have seen from Milwaukee than what I've seen or haven't seen from Philadelphia, so... I'm going with the Bucks, and, and really that's just about the faith that I have in Giannis because the drop-off between him and the rest of that team is what's really concerning. Yeah. Um, the supporting cast is not ideal, but I'm, I'm picking them over the Sixers, picking the Clippers over the Lakers in the West, and then Clippers over Bucks in the finals. Okay, so you got, and you have Kawhi winning finals MVP, just randomly. Because uh, let's give it let's give it to PG man. All right, Kawhi's won enough of those. If, if Kawhi Leonard in back to back years brings championships to the Raptors and Clippers, like that's 
Man, we start talking about like an all-time. We already are talking about an all-time great, but like in terms of where he lands on the pantheon of greats, like man, he would be up there. Yeah, I've I've got Sixers over Bucks in the East final. I think Giannis is the best player between those two teams, but I think that you know you mentioned the drop off between Giannis and the rest of that roster. I like Middleton and Bledsoe, but I think the Sixers have more top end talent. I think defensively with their size they can cause the Bucks a lot of problems and though the Sixers offensive fit concerns me I just think between that size and their defensive potential and I, I just feel like they're a little more postseason built than the Bucks are and the Bucks are going to be on their heels and having to adjust and coach Bud might crap himself if that's the case again as he wants to do and he has to uh-huh. make an adjustment mid-series I'll give the Sixers the edge in a really like hard-nosed, competitive, probably six or seven game East Finals. I've got Lakers over Clippers. Wow. In the West Finals. I've said it like 300 times now that I think LeBron James is out for blood this season. And it's going to go down as like an ultimate FU season from LeBron. I think that while the Clippers are probably the better built team and are deeper and have a one-two punch that arguably go can go right toe-to-toe with LeBron and Anthony Davis. I just think in some sense of like basketball purity, I don't know if we have seen a superstar duo, at least offensively, that fits as flawlessly as LeBron James and Anthony Davis. And I think when both of them are on the court together, the Lakers are going to steamroll a lot of teams. And in the playoffs, they're going to be on the court together for the majority of the games. I think the Clippers will give them a run for their money. I think the Clippers will have the better regular season record. I think the Clippers will be favored in that series. And then I just think the Lakers are going to pull it out because I have so much faith in that duo. And then I've got the Lakers, despite all of their flaws... And concerns about depth and shooting and playmaking, whatever the case may be. I feel like if LeBron James and Anthony Davis are healthy and play as much as we think they will play in playoff series and in a potential finals matchup, that they will be the last team standing. And it'll kind of be one of those things where we look back and think, you know, we thought this season was so wide open and one team had LeBron James and Anthony Davis and maybe it wasn't as wide open as we thought. I mean, that always kind of ends up happening, right? Like, we, we look at it now, and it looks super wide open, but, you know, 25 games into the season, we're going to start to see some separation, and there are going to be a couple teams, I think, that establish themselves as head and shoulders above the rest of the pack. So uh, I'm curious to see who those teams turn out to be, but the Lakers are as good a bet as any, I think. All right, we've got just a few minutes, so we're basically just going to have to plow through these okay. uh, individual awards picks. MVP. I've got Giannis winning it again, and I'll just say quickly, like, when I first sat down to think about this, the the first name that popped into my head was Steph, just because I think if the Warriors can get to, like, 50 wins, there's such an easy narrative there. I think Steph's going to win the scoring title. Yeah, and, like, if, again, like, if if he continues to to lead the Warriors to even the middle of the pack in the Western Conference with the lack of help that he has on that team. I just think there's going to be a real kind of propulsive momentum there toward him winning that MVP, you know, for the first time since Kevin Durant joined the team. So that's why I had him initially. But then I just thought I have the Warriors finishing seventh in the West. 
And I'm not so like nitpicky about that, that stuff where I think, you know, a team has to win a certain number of games for a player on that team to win MVP. But I had them finishing seventh in the West. I had the Bucks finishing first in the East. And I had Giannis winning defensive player of the year. So given all that, I couldn't really see a reason why in that circumstance, Giannis wouldn't also win MVP. I've got LeBron James. <laughs> of course. Um <laughs> In the do, do you think that he has one more FU season left in him? Or <laughs> Have I mentioned that before? LeBron James averaged 27-8-8 eight, eight last year, and I know what his regular season defense is about these days. Mm-hmm. I think he can actually average more assists this season with Anthony Davis there to get buckets off of him and also... He's going to lead the league in assists. That's, yeah. that's my bold like, I think he's going to have double-digit assists, and if like LeBron averages 25-10-8, while playing 70-plus games in a season where he maybe feels he has to again and the Lakers just win 50-55 plus going to the playoffs with momentum, I think I think LeBron will get the votes because I think there will be an appreciation for what he's doing at his age coming off of last year, and I think there will be a bit of nostalgia that plays into it, but there is you know human emotions that sometimes go into the MVP vote, and if LeBron has a season I think he's going to have, I think he'll get enough votes to take home the last MVP of his career. Yeah, that's fair. I've um, got Embiid for Defensive Player of the Year. You okay. said you got Giannis. I've got Giannis. I just think he is, if not the best defensive player in the league, then definitely the most versatile. And I expect the Bucks defense to be really, really good once again. Um, so, yeah, I'm going with Giannis. Embiid, I, I, the only question there, I guess, is like how many games is he playing? You uh, know, is he playing enough games? But like the Sixers, like I've said many times, I think are going to have the number one defense in the league. So exactly that'll help his case. Yeah, that's the way I see it. I think he's going to be the best defensive player on the best defensive team. Mm-hmm. Most improved, I got Bam. Uh, we talked about this on our breakout players pod, so I don't need to rehash too much of it. Uh, I just think given the, the sort of confluence of opportunity, his skill set, and the fact that I, I, I really think he has a chance to blossom this season, uh, and that the Heat are probably going to be pretty good. You know, as I said, fifth in the East, I think. He's going to have a pretty strong case to make. Man, I had like 12 guys that I was going back and forth between. Bam is up there. Marvin Bagley, I think, is a really nice candidate because I think he his numbers will go up for a Kings team that's going to stay in the playoff race. But I'm going Shea Gilgis-Alexander. Okay. Um, watch some of him in the preseason. He's going to have an opportunity he hasn't had yet, obviously, in his brief NBA career. I think sky's the limit for him and I think being under the mentorship of Chris Paul for at least part of the season I think that will pay dividends for it I I just see like a very unexpected statistical jump from him on a very bad team and maybe that'll work against them but I think his numbers will jump by enough that he'll get the award yeah I, I think that's just so contingent on what happens with Chris Paul yeah because as much as I think those guys can play together, especially defensively, I don't know that it's going to benefit Shea to be playing off ball, you know, half the time. Um, so that's something that could sort of stand in the way of his development. Who you got for sixth man? Sixth man, I've got Fred Van Vliet. Wow. Although I'm now, the reason he I'm now start. concerned about this pick <laughs> is because now it looks like he's going to start. And to win sixth man, I believe you need to come off the bench for more than 50% of the games that yeah. you've played. And I, now I'm not thinking that's going to be the case, but... I think he'll ultimately end up coming off the yeah. bench more than he starts. Not because he's not good enough to start, but just because I think the Raptors are going to need his ball handling off of the bench. Like They don't have really anybody else. I, they, I guess they have Terrence Davis, but like I don't know if he can really capably run the offense. Yeah. I, 
So, uh, yeah, I, I would expect them to have Van Vliet coming off the bench just because I, I, they need a playmaker back there. Van Vliet finished third in sixth man of the year voting two years ago. A lot of people actually did pick him to win the award going into last year. He looked like potentially the best reserve in the league. He didn't get off to a great start, really struggled, and then we know how he finished the season in the playoffs and in the finals. Seems to be carrying that over during the preseason. He's got a swagger about him. It's a contract year for him. I'm going with him. Um, I initially had Bogdan Bogdanovich on the Kings, um, just like an unbelievable World Cup and a player who I think has a really nice skill set and like is well positioned to have a nice season. And he's a microwave guy, which always yeah, just because of his scoring ability, like his ability to do stuff with the ball in his hands, uh, and especially you know if he's out there captaining second units, and I think can be really effective. But then I found out that the Jazz were going to be bringing Joe Ingles off of the bench. Nice. So I switched my pick to Ingles just because I think in comparing those two players, I think Ingles is better shooter, better passer, uh, better defender. So I actually think it's ridiculous that they're bringing him off the bench. I think he should be starting. Yeah, I think they're doing that just because defensively at the four, like if he was starting, it would be either him or Bogdanovich guarding fours. They obviously feel way more comfortable with Royce O'Neal tackling that assignment. And I think for O'Neal, it might be kind of a token start where, you know, he's in there for the first six minutes of the game and then ultimately only plays like 15 minutes. Joe Ingles is going to close games for them. Yeah, but I understand their reservations about their their four spot defensively. So I think that's why. And I think it does make sense. they started Jeff Green degree. a bit in the preseason, too. Yeah, like I think maybe they'll... I, I can see them rotating out through that four spot in the starting lineup, and maybe it'll just be matchup dependent, right? And Ingles probably will get a whole bunch of starts. And by the end of season, he may have played his way out of contention for this award because they decide that they're better off starting him. So who knows? But if he's coming off the bench, I, I just really like Ingles as a player. And I think the Jazz are going to have a really good regular season record, so that'll help. Are we going with anyone else but Zion for Rookie of the Year? No. Yeah, he's winning. I, I think he could play 48 games and win Rookie of the Year. I think he's that ready to dominate. Yeah, I mean, I cast my entirely fictitious vote for Joel Embiid the year that he played, I think, 37 games as a rookie. I think this rookie class will be better than that rookie class was, but even so, I think if a rookie is dominant enough, like if Zion plays half the season and looks the way that he looked in the preseason, I'd still be willing to vote for him. Yeah. Coach of the year, I've got Mike Malone. I have Mike Malone as well. Um, We're in agreement that the Nuggets get the one seed in the regular season. Right. And if they get the one seed in the regular season, and even if you know the Bucks win 60 games, Budenholzer's not winning it a second year in a row, I just think it'll Coaches end up, never win two yeah. years in a row. Like, it's even literally... If it's, even if it's deserved. It has literally never yeah. happened before. So, eliminate the Bucks essentially. Yeah. I mean, I guess there's a path for Brett Brown to get it if the Sixers end up getting the one seed, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, Doc Rivers, maybe. Yeah, but Quinn even then, Snyder. like, so much of the coach of your uh, voting is tied to expectations and, yeah. you know, whether you exceed them. And I think it'll be hard for either of the LA coaches to do that. Yeah. So I think in the end, it'll, like, if one of Denver or Utah pulls away and gets the one seed, I think Mike Malone or Quinn Snyder will get it. And I have Denver in the one seed. So Mike Malone. I think. Mike Malone has a lot of things going for him there. And and one of them is just that there's a lot of continuity with this team. And he has overseen that team's rise from... He's grown with them. Not in the playoff picture, basically, and kind of disappointing team to what looks like a potential juggernaut. And I think voters tend to reward that kind of thing. Like, I think about it sort of similarly to to Dwayne Case's award a couple of years ago where... For Mike Malone's sake, let's hope not, though. Yeah. uh, Hopefully he won't get fired after this one. But... (laughs) um, 
you know, when, when you have a coach who has been with the team for a long time, it's almost sort of like a career achievement award where you recognize not just the work that they put in that particular season, but all the work that they put in to get that team from where it was to where it ends up. And I think that's something we could see with Malone this year, if the Nuggets do indeed have the regular season I expect them to have. Last one, executive of the year. Lawrence Frank. Yeah, Lawrence Frank, Michael Winger, I guess the combination. I don't. Yeah, who else could realistically yeah, be? There, it's going to be them. Yeah. It's Lawrence Frank staking out the Scotiabank Arena uh-huh. every night for six months. It looks like it paid off. Yeah, I mean, maybe Elton Brand. Is that crazy? Just given the way that he remade that team on the fly I, after losing Jimmy Butler? Yeah. If they do, like you expect, have the number one record in the East, and then, I mean, I guess it's really a regular season award, but if they do that and then like go to the finals, will you not yeah, think that I he know. deserves some consideration? Yeah, he, 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 he will deserve some consideration. Yeah. I just think the Clippers would have to completely fall flat on their face for Frank and Winger to not get it. Yeah, I agree. Although, like, if it is a regular season award and they sort of coast through the regular season, then maybe not. But uh, they did the best job this offseason, let's be real. Yeah, I'd, I'd say so. We did a pretty all right job this offseason, too, I think. And now the offseason has ended in 36 hours. It will have ended. The next time we come to you with an episode, the NBA season will have tipped off. Until then, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the rock. <laughs>